work now is to shine a light on what is happening because the idea that they would try to pass legislation, huge tax legislation, transfer of trillions of dollars of wealth away from working families, not a single hearing. We have not even seen a bill. Have you seen the bill? Have you seen the If I were running the Democratic Party, I'd have freedom riders going back all across the country uh, in buses the way they did in the 60s, because I think it is that much of an outrageous violation of both democracy and civil rights, what's being done. And it is subverting our democracy, in my opinion, based on everything we've seen so far, infinitely more than anything Russians or anyone else have done. Britain was in the midst of World War One and was in bitter contestation for historic Palestine with the Ottoman Turks, who had been ruling that part of Asia for decades, if not centuries. And so in some ways, what London was doing was pledging land to the nascent Zionist movement that it did not actually control. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance and Alternative News from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, this week, a major new report was released titled Autopsy, the Democratic Party in Crisis, about the loss by Democrats in the 2016 U.S. presidential race. We'll speak to an author and an analyst of the rather scathing report in the second half of the show. We also have voices from among the hundreds who gathered on Capitol Hill Wednesday to protest the Trump Republican tax cut for the rich that economists say could be the biggest transfer of wealth to the rich from the working class since the 2008 economic crash. And Gerald Horn is joining us with news from around the globe. So as always, we have a packed show starting with our headlines. Well, this week's autopsy report on the Democratic Party is right on time as Donald Brazil, former interim chair of the Democratic National Committee, dropped a bomb on Thursday. She revealed in an excerpt from a forthcoming book what many progressives have long suspected, that the 2016 Democratic primary was rigged to benefit the Clinton campaign, which funneled millions of dollars through the Democratic National Committee and took control of the DNC in the process. Senator Elizabeth Warren, who campaigned for Clinton, told the PBS NewsHour on Thursday that the Democratic Party must restore trust among candidates and voters. We recognize the process was rigged. And now it is up to Democrats to build a new process, a process that really works and works for everyone. And that as we go forward, we have confidence in the integrity of the system that Democrats, as they run a primary, are going to let the people speak and that we're going to have a candidate who's the candidate chosen by the people. On the Republican side of the aisle, the push is on to pass Trump's tax cut plan, which critics are calling another gift to the super rich. The consumer rights organization Public Citizen released a report titled For the Few, Not the Many, saying that just repealing this estate tax alone will save Trump's own heirs about $593 million, an amount equal to the combined net worth of 6,000 U.S. families. Rob Weissman, president of Public Citizen, told those rallying Wednesday on Capitol Hill that the tax plan evokes an era of unrestrained greed. It's tax policy by conflict of interest. It's also robber baron tax policy. Emphasis on the robber. Because they're going to steal from our Medicare. They're going to steal from our Medicaid. They want to steal 
from health care and education and the things that bring us together as a country. But even more, they want to not even pay what they're supposed to pay after the deal is done. When they talk about this pass-through provision, that's an invitation for super rich people to incorporate themselves and treat themselves as corporations, because you know people and corporations, it's the same thing. When they talk about territorial taxes, that's a way for multinational corporations to de-Americanize and not pay American taxes at all. So it's robber baron, robber baron policy. They're going to rob from us. We'll have more voices from that Wednesday rally after headlines. In Planet News, D.C. could become one of the first jurisdictions in the country to put a tax on carbon emissions. Dozens of residents and activists turn out to a rally at City Hall to urge passage of the Climate and Community Reinvestment Act, which would place a fee on carbon pollution in the district and rebate the large majority of revenue back to D.C. residents. According to an economic study by the Center for Climate Strategies, this policy would raise incomes for the majority of D.C. residents and result in stable economic growth with a steady boost in jobs. It would also reduce planet-warming carbon emissions 23% by 2032 for electricity, natural gas, and home heating oil consumed in the district. Council members Robert White, David Grasso, and Charles Allen are supporters of the act. And... Two D.C.-based activists, Charlie Jang and Karina Gonzalez, are scheduled to join a U.S. delegation at the United Nations Climate Conference in Germany beginning on November 6th. The conference, also known as COP23, is the largest global climate meeting since President Trump announced the U.S. will withdraw from the Paris Agreement. Gonzalez, Jang, and their fellow youth delegates will speak out against President Trump's climate rollbacks in the wake of hurricanes and wildfires made stronger by rising temperatures. And now we're going to stay in the international sphere as we are joined by our geopolitical analyst, the author and activist, Professor Gerald Horn. Well, Gerald, let's start with a follow-up to your report on China's Communist Party Congress, which recently concluded. When you first mentioned it on the show, you said that the party planned to announce more involvement in businesses there. You know, what happened with that? Well, that's definitely one of the headlines coming out of the party Congress that takes place every five years. I think in addition to the state playing a larger role in the economy, and in addition, Communist Party cells now flourishing in the enterprises of private businesses. For example, Wall Street Journal had a story the other day about a Communist Party cell at Disney. I doubt if there's a Communist Party cell at Disney headquarters in California, for example. No, I don't think so. <laughs> Not only that, but uh, President Xi Jinping announced that China has entered a new era. It's now moving to center stage. And when you see the first photographs and camera shots of U.S. President Donald J. Trump in Beijing in the next 24 to 48 hours, It'll be interesting to watch the body language and to see if China will be trying to send a signal to the world akin to the signal they just sent about China entering center stage at the last party Congress. 
Well, we're focusing on anniversaries in these coming weeks on the show. Last week, we had a segment on Thomas Sankara, and also included in that was Che Guevara, uh, 30 years since Thomas Sankara was assassinated, uh, uh, head of uh, Burkina Faso, uh, and Che Guevara, the Cuban revolutionary, um, assassinated in Bolivia in 67. But in the last part of this hour, we'll be looking at the DNC one year after Trump's election. This week, we're also marking 100 years since the Balfour Declaration issued in 1917 by British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour, which laid the groundwork for the Zionist movement, the establishment of the state of Israel, and the displacement, and many argue the genocide of Palestinian people, and certainly the apartheid system that is set up there now. So I wanted to get your take on this dubious milestone, this anniversary. Well, certainly it's a day of mourning and regret. Recall that at the time of the Balfour Declaration in 1917, Britain was in the midst of World War I and was in bitter contestation for historic Palestine with the Ottoman Turks, who had been ruling that part of Asia for decades, if not centuries. And so in some ways, what London was doing was pledging land to the nascent Zionist movement that it did not actually control, but it was a way to get on side, on London's side, in the contestation with the Ottoman Turks, not only the Zionist movement, but any supporters they might have worldwide. Uh, that led, as you know, to the United Nations Declaration of 1947, which supposedly was going to set up two states, only one state emerged, and when I think of that tragic episode, I have to confess, I think of the rather nefarious role played by the black American, Ralph Bunch, a man formerly of the left, a formerly a left-wing professor at Howard University, but was willing to be an opportunist. And after the assassination of his supervisor, the UN diplomat, Folk Bergdott of Sweden, he moved into the role of mediator and basically tipped the scales in favor of Israel and against the Palestinians. And in 2017, we're still awaiting the emergence of a Palestinian state. Well, speaking of a Palestinian state, you know, there's a lot in the news here related. I think we mentioned before that James Zogby, one of the few kind of advocates for Palestine in the leadership of the Democratic National Committee was booted out of his position recently. And from speaking to some, you know, insiders this week, I understand that a lot of that displacement of him was due to Donna Brazil, who was allowed to keep her position in the leadership of the DNC, despite the revelations of how she was complicit in maneuvering with the Clinton campaign last year. And uh, you know that this week, she is out promoting her book and, you know, dropped a bombshell, basically saying that she knew that the DNC was colluding against Bernie Sanders. So I know it's a zigzag uh, connection, but given the fact that the Palestinian people are suffering to this day, and Zogby is one of the people who was advocating for the Democratic Party to have a more progressive and international position toward the Palestinian people, it's connected in my mind anyway. Oh, I think you're absolutely correct. And that's one of the many reasons why so many commentators, I'm afraid to say, are suggesting that Donald J. Trump may be reelected, believe it or not, 
in 2020, despite his many transgressions, if not crimes. That is to say, the weakness of the Democratic Party, the DNC, is reflected in the purge of James Sogby and a reluctance to take a forthright stand on the Palestinian question helps to drive potential Democratic Party voters away from the polls as opposed to towards the polls. Hmm. Well, well, let's end on what little known news you have for this week. Well, you may recall that a few days ago, uh, Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee suggested that Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was being, quote, castrated, unquote, by Donald J. Trump. And then Rex Tillerson had a press conference to suggest that he was, quote, intact, unquote. But what's not intact is his moral courage or his ethics. If you look at the small West African nation of Equatorial Guinea, you will find a nation that contains a leader who has ruled for decades, one of the richest men on planet Earth, Teodoro Obiang, whose son wastes the country's millions based on oil wealth on having one of the largest collections of Michael Jackson memorabilia on planet Earth and having a plush estate in Malibu that's outside of Los Angeles. Well, it's striking to note that one of the reasons why that corrupt setup continues to persist is that the president of Equatorial Guinea established a relationship early on with the president of ExxonMobil, guess who? Rex Tillerson. So having Rex Tillerson have any sort of impact on U.S. foreign policy towards Africa, quite frankly, is allowing uh, Dracula to guard the blood bank. (laughs) Wow. Okay, well, I certainly didn't know about that. We'll have to keep an eye on that as you could say that more attention is being given to Africa because of the recent developments in Niger. And, you know, perhaps more light will be shed on that as well. Well, let's hope so. Okay. Well, I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, and and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Gerald. I hope so. Thank you. Bye-bye. In culture and media, opening in theaters today is the documentary 11816, which chronicles the day about a year ago when Donald Trump was elected as U.S. president. After screening this movie, I think regardless of your choices in and opinion about the 2016 election, that it offers a snapshot of that pivotal day that will ring true, and that the veracity comes through the up-close portraits of American voters across the country, black, white, Latino, young, old, urban, and rural, who we see in real time make up the mosaic of decisions that determine the outcome. The movie does suffer from a binary election day constraint, and so a glaring omission are voices of disaffected voters from both the Democratic and Republican parties, while 11816 does slightly favor the perspective of Hillary Clinton supporters, it compensates for this fact at the start by citing polls that she was expected to win handily. In other culture and media, the For Sisters Only Festival is happening Saturday, November 4th at the Walter E. Washington Convention Center in Northwest D.C., and the 44th Annual Conference on D.C. History is happening through November 5th at the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church, also in Northwest D.C. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, voices on Capitol Hill say not one more penny for the rich. Stay with us.
I'm a private citizen from Kansas, and I love Kansas. I love Kansas, and I'm here to talk to you about what happened there with a very similar tax plan to what they're talking about doing in our beloved country, the United States of America. And what do we say to them? Not one penny! That's right. What happened in Kansas is an incredibly personal story for me because every single person that I know from home was deeply affected by this. As a mother of three children, I have seen firsthand what this experiment has done to our people. And Governor Sam Brownback was elected in November 2009 on a platform of trickle-down economics. Shrinking government. And increasing efficiency. That translated into slashing the tax revenue that our state agencies use to provide vital services. That includes correctional officers, social workers, and people that regulate environment and water and air quality. At last count, the state of Kansas employee workforce has been reduced by 25%. That means 25% fewer social workers, correctional officers, state employees that are keeping all of us safe and healthy. What do we say? Not one penny! Take our schools, for example. Our school districts have been forced to eliminate programs, lay off staff members, and even shorten our school weeks. And Kansas schools are so underfunded that the state Supreme Court has ruled that the Republican-dominated legislature has not abided by its constitutional mandate to finance our schools in our state of Kansas. What do we say? Just weeks ago, on October 10th, news broke that more than 70 children are missing from Kansas, according to the companies that are contracted by the Kansas Department of Children and Families to run the foster care system. The state of Kansas has literally lost children because we decided to trim spending in this reprehensible manner. I am here today to implore you all to learn from Kansas. When they decided to starve our public services in order to give tax cuts to rich folks, our lives are endangered, we are harmed, and we sometimes lose people altogether. Yeah. Yep. Thank you for the, for the opportunity to talk to you all today. What do we say? the Houston area. She's from Texas. Please help me. Welcome to the stage, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee. I'm holding my own sign. As a member of the Budget Committee, I can tell you I can read between the lines. This pie is not for you. This pie is not Thanksgiving. This pie is devastation. And if you take it, it is at your own peril. Because this pie shows you that 80%, 80%, 80% of the tax cut goes to the top 1%. So I'm going to leave you with these points, and I'm going to ask you at the end, is this the America you want? No!
Do you want in America that the budget cut $2.4 trillion passed by the Republicans last week out of the out of the very soul of the American people? Cutting Medicare, cutting Medicaid, cutting education, the environment. Do you want a tax cut that eliminates the dependent exemption? What does that mean? It means ordinary citizens get a four thousand plus dependent exemption. It will rip it away from you. Do you want that kind of America? Do you want an America that will create almost a two trillion dollar deficit growth every single year and the only people that will be paying for it are those yet unborn? No! Then my friends, as I hold this up, being the strong woman that I am, I just want you to answer the question, are you going to walk this journey with us and never give up? Are we going to say no more, not one more penny and no to this Ryan McConnell tax bill that is only for the 1%? Our next speaker is first vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. She's also the vice ranking member on the budget committee, and she represents the great state of Washington, my friend Pramila Jayapal. Thank you so much, and thank you to the Tax March for organizing this. I'm proud to be here as uh, the first vice chair of the Progressive Caucus. We have an amazing people's budget, right? Our people's budget says what we should be investing in and how we're going to get that money. Um, and I'm also vice ranking on the budget committee. And when we were on the budget committee, we offered something like 28 amendments. And they were amendments to the budget that was passed last week off the floor. And that budget, our amendments were about how we need to invest in health care, in education, in transportation, in jobs, in the things that really make this country great. And instead, what happened is that budget got passed off the floor. And let's be really clear about what the agenda is here. Number one, enormous transfer of wealth because that budget paves the way for this tax bill, which is not a tax reform plan. It is a tax giveaways to the wealthiest and the corporations plan. So number one on their agenda, we will not be tricked for their treats. Number one, number one on their agenda is massive transfer of wealth. Number two, drive up the deficit. Number three, make sure that they can cut spending even more than what they're proposing. So I went to the rules committee last week. I offered an amendment that said none of these tax cuts should go to the top 1%. And I made the argument, we don't even need to go back decades. You can just look at Kansas. You can just look at Kansas. Kansas, a Republican legislature that put through all the tax cuts on the same basis as what they're saying now, that somehow it's going to invest, it's going to create jobs and, you know, all higher wages and all of these things. Lies, lies, lies. The reality is that this is going to be a tax bill that transfers 80% of the tax cuts, $4 trillion of tax cuts, to the wealthiest 1%. If you're earning a million dollars or more, bingo, you get a million dollars back in tax cuts. 
that is just absurd. So our work now is to shine a light on what is happening because the idea that they would try to pass legislation, huge tax legislation, transfer of trillions of dollars of wealth away from working families, not a single hearing. We have not even seen a bill. Have you seen the bill? Have you seen the plan? How is it right that the American people would allow for this to happen? And what you are doing today is making sure that we shine a light on this and we are going to kill this bill like we did health care. I held a, a tax town hall on Monday night in my district, and I think we need to be doing this in districts across the country. We need to make it, yeah. be making sure that people understand what is in this bill, that it is stripping essential services from working families across this country, and that ultimately the only people that benefit are those largest corporations and the wealthiest 1%. And let me just say one last thing. I have a bunch of millionaires in my district. I want to say thank you to the patriotic millionaires, folks who are here. Because it is patriotic for millionaires to say, you know what, don't give me a tax break. Don't give me a tax break. I don't need it. I'm not, I'm not a millionaire, by the way. But, <laughs> but, but for those folks who say that, thank you. Because we need to understand that, as Sister Simone said, we need to take care of each other. And the ultimate goal that we know is true is we're all better off when we're all better off. So let's kill this bill. Thank you all so much. You have been listening to Voices from the Rally to Resist the Republican Tax Plan held November 1st on Capitol Hill. When we come back, the autopsy on the Democrats. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and now we're going to turn our attention to the anniversary looming ahead of us. November 8th will mark one year since Donald Trump was elected president. And a new report basically says what we've been saying on this show for the past year, that the national leadership of the Democratic Party has not learned anything from last year's loss. The report says that this week's Mueller indictments won't save the Democrats at election time and that the policies, operations, and campaign priorities of the National Democratic Party undermine support and turnout from its base in the 2016 general election. 
Joining me on the line to discuss the report is one of its authors, Karen Bernal. Bernal chairs one of the largest caucuses in the California Democratic Party, the Progressive Caucus, and she serves as a delegate to the state Democratic Party. Also on the line is Richard Escal, Senior Advisor of Health and Economic Justice for Social Security Works and host of the Zero Hour on Free Speech TV and WCPT Radio in Chicago. He recently wrote the piece, Why Centrists Will Sink the Democrats If They Haven't Already, at ourfuture.org. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Well, there's so many things you cover in the report, but let's just start with the fact that your report shows that the policies and priorities of the National Democratic Party actually undermine support from its base last year. Karen, why don't you start as one of the authors? Yes, I think overall it can be said that the party still seems to be stuck with the approach of trying to chase down the ever-shrinking would-be Republican voters that would flip over to the Democrats and also the ever-shrinking universe available to them in the suburban white vote while they eschew their own base, uh, namely people of color, reliable voting block of African-Americans, particularly African-American women, and also the working class, which, by the way, is increasingly people of color. We know that by 2032, the working class age cohort from 18 to 54 will be people of color. And for the 25 to 34-year-old, the people that went strongly for Bernie, they will be the majority working class 2021 just a year after the next presidential election. So there's a lot of frustration with the approach that the party is taking, and we can see that the evidence has come back to bite them in the very poor turnout for these uh, demographics that should be their base. So tell me a little bit about who produced the report and, you know, the kind of where you all are coming from. Well, I'm the chair of the Progressive Caucus of the California State Democratic Party, the largest caucus uh, in that party. And safe to say that we, we are the activist base that's pushing strongly on the party to go in a more left direction. Norman Solomon has been a, a social justice advocate for many, many years and is also an author. And then um, Pia Gallegos, who is a civil rights uh, attorney from uh, New Mexico, and Sam McCann, uh, a writer in New York, also, you know, a progressive uh, activist. So I would say that we had put this report together because we noted that the party, for the first time in many years, did not produce a post-mortem or an autopsy report, as they usually do, analyzing what happened in the elections. And given the fact that it was such an astounding turnout for what eventually happened, if there was any election begged for one, it was that one. So we decided to put it together, and we hope that it provides a point of reference for people mm-hmm. to talk about so that we can go forward in 2018 and 2020 and hopefully learn from this. So the report is titled Autopsy, the Democratic Party in Crisis, and it points to data and a lot of research done on the part of the authors. Can you talk a little bit about the process and just so people understand that it's just not people just writing their opinions, but the kind of research that you did that went into it? We utilized quite a bit of data from uh, sources such as the Economic Policy Institute, 
And many of the polls that are constantly taken, like the Harvard-Harris poll and further studies that others had done, if we were to take it all apart, there were things that people will read and recognize fairly quickly as things that they had heard before or seen before. And so there's not any great secret to a lot of it, but it is the way that it is organized. There are, however, parts that we did find that we felt was kind of new and breaking ground, um, Mm -hmm. such as, you know, the fact that we can see before us now that the so-called working class voter is not white clearly anymore, and that is essentially going to disappear. And so uh, kind of the silo politics of which ends up having the effect of pitting one identity against another and their needs and concerns, that is going away. There are demographic groups that before our eyes, whether we do anything about it or not, that are increasingly intersectional. So there were things that we found out like that and also just how bad the turnout was for some age cohorts. We found that there was an 8% among the voters under age 30 that went with a third-party candidate. That was national. Uh, Even more worrying was in battleground states of all states, that percentage for the under 30 age group was significantly higher. Wow, more than 8%. Yes. So... I wanted to turn to Richard because speaking of things in the news and breaking news, you had a piece this week. Well, I think responding to the report, you were were saying that basically the Mueller investigation won't bring people to the Democratic Party in the upcoming elections. And your piece in OurFuture.org said uh, why centrists will sink the Democrats if they haven't already. I wanted you to kind of talk about your reaction to this latest flurry of of excitement, I guess, about these Mueller investigations and the Democratic Party's response to them. Well, I think like most reasonable people, I share the revulsion at Donald Trump's presidency, which I would also extend to Mike Pence uh, as vice president, Paul Ryan as speaker of the House. So uh, a number of, a couple of concerns. One is I think a lot of Democrats have personalized their antagonism in the form of Donald Trump, who is... uh, in many ways, all too reflective of his party, especially on economic uh, and racial issues. The Republican Party has been running on bigotry for 60 years, at least. So I think that Mike, one concern has been that bringing down Donald Trump will not necessarily change the trajectory of the Republican Party and what it's doing to the country. That's number one. And number two is I think that the Democratic Party, since the since this election loss of last year, has been all too quick to blame its misfortune on on Putin and the Russians when the extent of the impact of the Russians' activities on the election outcome is, A, unknown at this time, and B, does nothing to explain the Democrats' 10-year record of successive losses in state legislatures, now having lost two-thirds of state legislatures, governorships, two-thirds of governorships and so on. So I think the Democrats have got to look at more systemic structural problems and stop looking for what in effect is an excuse uh, to avoid the issue of transforming the party, which is 
Putin did it. And I think they also, I think the Democrats as a party, have got to step away from the idea that once people realize how horrible Donald Trump is and what he may or may not have done to collude with Russians and, and other things, that they will suddenly start winning elections. I think there's no evidence for that. There's evidence against it. Uh, essentially, they ran a presidential campaign last year largely based on revulsion towards Trump, well-documented causes for revulsion, and still lost. Furthermore, in the piece you mentioned, I pointed out that both Richard Nixon and his vice president, Spiro Agnew, were removed for malfeasance and corruption, removed from office in the 1970s, and yet two years after Nixon was forced to step down, Jimmy Carter barely was able to squeak through to election. And in 1980, Ronald Reagan won and ushered in 12 years of a Republican presidency. So I think the notion that misdeeds on the part of Republicans leads to victory for the Democrats is both sort of self-excusing and misguided and lazy, because I think that ultimately the conclusions of this report need to be addressed regardless of what comes out of Robert Mueller's investigation. You know, also in the news is the fact that the DNC recently let go, dismissed several progressive people from the leadership of the party here in D.C., including James Zogby, while at the same time retaining superdelegates, lobbyists who have voting power. I just received an email connected to a, a petition from Tulsi Gabbard basically pointing this out and asking people to sign on to this petition telling the DNC to basically be transparent, to be fair, to embrace diversity, and to get rid of these voting superdelegates, these lobbyists. So is this report in any way kind of connected to that, even if only in spirit? Well, there is a section t that talks about the superdelegate situation. It's called uh, Democracy in the Party. It's one of the sections, and it talks about that very system and how, un well, small d, undemocratic it is. And we saw a very familiar what is to some of us in state parties, you know, because a lot of the things that are taking place at the national level also take place at in smaller ways at the state level party mm. functions too. And that is they see this progressive populist wave coming on. They understand that the progressives have come into the party. They're fighting for progressive policies in the agendas. They want the parties to adopt them. So what they'll usually do is they'll allow a few resolutions to pass, never mind the fact that they're non-binding, but they'll allow them to pass in where the rubber meets the road. They will not be responded to. They will not be acted upon. And in the meantime, what they do is consolidate power through their various committees, particularly their rules and bylaws committees, and that is exactly what happened here. We now know that there are no Bernie supporters or Ellison supporters among the rules and bylaws committee, the very committee that sets the rules for the next presidential primaries and elections, and that is how they control power. The other development that we see taking place, as you pointed out, there were many corporate lobbyists that were nominated as superdelegates and at-large positions. We now are seeing that besides that, there are people who are running now for office, often against progressive candidates 
as there are new people coming into the party, there are also mm-hmm. progressive candidates that are also trying to run. But what we've seen in opposition are corporate candidates who themselves have either been wealthy donors or bundlers for wealthy donors. So that is what's taking place you know, within the party. Well, when I look at the race that occurred in Georgia, and when I look at some of the races where these same kind of corporate candidates have been put forward and have lost, I'm wondering at what point people will kind of learn a lesson or stop the what is considered insanity, basically, you know, doing the same thing and expecting a different result. And the other thing that's happening is here is that, you know, from a I guess a layperson's perspective or someone who is more of an observer, it seems like there's a really fierce battle going on within the Democratic Party between the progressive wing, the people who would like to see, you know, change, to, who would like to, who are like pushing for, you know, like more social justice agenda within the party and what I call the corporate Democrats. I mean, I, I'm just wondering, given that fight, what can happen, you know, by next year for the, the midterm elections and 2020? What do you see happening, Karen? Well, um, certainly the emerging sectors of the electorate are compelling the party to come to terms with the adamant grassroots rejection of economic injustice institutionalized racism, gender equality, environmental destruction, and most importantly, corporate domination. But the problem that the party has is it is impossible to side uh, with the people who constitute their base when, number one, they seem afraid of them, and two, by their own action, they communicate that they are taking the side of these corporate wealthy donors. And so that's what kills the enthusiasm. And this is more than just about the turnout. We're talking about energizing as well as expanding the party. And and it's not enough to to just fight right-wing efforts to rig the political system, but we have to give people um, who can vote a truly compelling reason to do so. And when we do things like that, it goes against all of that. So I'm not really sure. (laughs) Perhaps maybe the problem is more that they don't know how to change. And I I think given even the recent actions in Las Vegas at the DNC, it almost seems like that is the case. And it's almost as though not only do they not agree with what everyone is demanding, but they simply don't know how to change. I really hate to say that, but I mean, I'm not seeing any evidence that they're really trying to turn this around. Let me just jump in for a second. Just apropos of this, I've written about this this week. I'm going to write it about again. In the latest Harvard-Harris poll, party-based voters were asked, do you support or oppose movements within the Democratic Party to take it even further to the left and oppose the current Democratic leaders? A majority, 52%, said that they support those movements to take the party further left and oppose the current leadership. Now, not just 52%, 69% of voters aged 18 to 34, 65% of these are not white Bernie bros, 55% women versus 49, 46 per, or excuse me, 49% men, 55% African American, and 65% Hispanic versus 46% white. So the new emerging Democratic majority wants new leaders and a new agenda. And if the party resists it, I think it's just facing potential irrelevance. 
Yeah. And what do you think that irrelevance looks like? I mean, you already have massive numbers, according to what Karen just said, massive numbers of people defecting to a third party last time. And so does irrelevance mean that the Democrats will just basically have to keep suffering loss after loss and we'll continue to get these more and more extreme right wing Republicans winning? Well, if you're asking me, I think irrelevance looks like Republicans continuing to win state houses. I think Democrats should be making a passionate cause out of voter suppression and caging and everything else that they're engaged in. Fight for democracy at home, number one, because irrelevance looks like they rewrite the census again, the next census. Uh, They continue to rewrite the state rules, gerrymander, and it becomes very, very hard to break out of that bind. So a Democrats have to look at either being bold or it's going to be, I think, grim for everybody. I'm I'm an optimist by nature, so I do believe it's possible to change the party, and I do believe if that happens, it will start winning, and, and we can turn this thing around, but there's not a lot of time left. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I mean, one of the other things that the Harvard-Harris poll, from time to time, as you know, they come out with how voters identify themselves. And during the spring, I believe the percentage of people that identified as independent was at a high of 42%. The party, the Democratic Party, the people that identified as such in their poll was 30%. But in August, it came out that it had slipped and they were tied at 28% with the Republicans, with the independents at around 41%, I believe. And so the problem that we're having here is that because the party does not constitute any kind of majority at all, it is necessary for them to reach out beyond those people that call themselves Democrats. And since the rising electorate is going to be mainly young people, the working class, people of color, we need to be aware of the fact that that young voters are more left-wing but are less likely to identify as Democrats. According to a recent Brookings survey, only 37% of youth in 2016 identified as Democrats, and that was down from 45% in 2008. But the percentage who identified as liberal in 2016 was 37%, up from 32% in 2008. So what that tells you is that young voters are moving leftward but identifying less with a nominally left party, i.e. the Democratic Party. So that should indicate the approach that needs to be taken here. And what we need to do is, you know, the concern has to be about not just energizing what we already have but expanding that base. And, and that's the work in front of the Democratic Party. You know, Richard, you mentioned voter suppression, and that's also something we've been talking a lot uh, about a lot on, on the ground. And as an African-American voter, it almost seems like a slap in the face for this constant emphasis on Russia when here at home, black voters, brown voters, young people, many senior citizens were systematically deprived of their right to vote. And uh, these systems remain in place. I mean, we've had a longstanding question mark about even the validity of the voting machines 
So pile this on top of that. And then Trump has put together this bogus uh, election integrity commission or whatever, which no one's talking about. And, you know, this guy, Chris Kobach, and guy who has uh, systematically stripped people of the right to vote, you know, this is this should be uh, uh, illegal. This should be the thing that's considered treason uh, as opposed to, you know, whether someone had a meeting with some Russian lawyer. Well, look, voter ID laws, which the Republicans have been implementing all across the country, studies have shown they they just have a drastic effect on democracy. They've reduced the Latino vote, according to studies, by more than 10%, mixed race vote by nearly 13%, nearly doubled the participation gap between white and black voters, and they say they need to do it because there's all this voter fraud, supposedly, but a study of one billion votes found only 31 cases of voter fraud. They're they're closing down polling places. It's, it's Jim Crow all over again, and it mm-hmm. is affecting the outcomes of races. It very well may have affected the outcome of the presidential race. It's affected the outcome of a lot of state races, and to me, it's both puzzling and outrageous that the Democrats are not talking more about this. Frankly, if I were running the Democratic Party, which no one is lining up to offer me that job, but if (laughs) I were... If I were running the Democratic Party, I'd have freedom riders going back to, back all across this country uh, in buses the way they did in the 60s, because I think it is that much of an outrageous violation of both democracy and civil rights, what's being done. And it is subverting our democracy, in my opinion, based on everything we've seen so far, infinitely more than anything Russians or anyone else have done. And the fact that the Democrats are not taking this on as a major cause, because I think even fair-minded Republican voters, a lot of them, if they knew the facts, they would say, you know, this isn't right. And uh, this would be yet another way that Democrats could mobilize, organize, drive voter turnout, get people involved. And the fact that they're turning away from this in order to fixate on Putin and so on is, look, obviously we want to know what was done. We want Mueller to do his investigation. But the fact that they're not taking this on as a cause, to me, is enormously uh, misguided and frustrating. Right. Yes, and, uh, you know, and I want to say, though, that there is a small kind of a movement for them to do it now, but it needs to really be accelerated, this gear up of staffing to fight those assaults, and they're not doing it to the degree that they have to. And when I look at the fact that just last July was Chuck Schumer's uh, in, now infamous quote about, for every blue-collar Democrat we lose in western Pennsylvania, we will pick up two moderate Republicans in the suburbs uh, in Philadelphia and you can repeat that in Ohio and in Illinois and Wisconsin, that that was his quote, it's very difficult for them to uncouple that attitude from their anemic showing in terms of prioritizing what's taking place before us in terms of the disenfranchisement. The attitude is the foundation for all of those things. Right. And 
I'm kind of running out of time, but I wanted to say that, you know, there's also been this rhetoric since the election, basically saying that the Democrats paid too much attention to people of color. You have this Columbia professor coming out with articles, and I've seen him on some talk shows talking about identity politics and basically using that almost as a slur to say that, you know, we're tired of paying so much attention to those black people or those brown people. And brown people are actually maybe a big problem. But I want to follow up on what you just said in terms of not only paying attention to voter suppression, but all the other issues that would really galvanize the younger base, people of color. When Bernie Sanders, you know, gets a big crowd for Medicare for all, you know, they, the, some people want to kind of glom onto that. You know, you saw them kind of crowding around him at the press conference here. But, you know, it's interesting that, so many of those policies, they still want to keep at arm's length. So young people aren't stupid. So they see you voting for this huge increase in the military budget, yet you want to tell them that they can't afford a free public college or that you can't do more to stop subsidizing the fossil fuel industry. And so people see all these things, and I just sometimes think that they, they either think that people are stupid or or that they're not paying attention. But, you know, from here, where we sit here in D.C., it just seems like a crazy house. And uh, it just, just seems like people aren't really having their ear to the ground. But I want to ask you finally to wrap up, you know, what's going to happen with this report? What do you hope will come from the report? Well, Both the mere fact that some of these things, and, and there were a couple of other items. We are talking about the possibility of a supplemental to this. I, first, I should say that. But we're hoping that it is a big major point of reference that can stimulate discussion and follow-up, more importantly, follow-up for those within the party that have been fighting the lonely fight of, of trying to advance some of these more progressive policy agenda items, not to mention just the, the way that field operations work and, and the outreach. Part of the one thing that I think that isn't being said enough is that the Democratic Party needs to embrace social movements and, and they need to be able to understand that the energy that comes with social movements is something that can help lift the party, not, not just as, as something that can, can get Democratic votes, but something that where they are seen as being part of that movement and, and therefore the party becoming a fabric of everyday life and the, the lives of everyday voters. That's one thing. And so I'm hoping that it stimulates a badly needed discussion and that from there we have something, a tool, as it were, to, to use and to, to talk about and to push back with. And Richard, did you have some thoughts? Well, just that we need to understand that the economic struggle and the identity struggle are the same struggle, in my opinion, and I've got a lot of allies who agree with me on that, and that this report provides more information that the allies who understand that can use. Uh, I don't think we'll necessarily persuade the current leadership of the party, but this is ammunition that people like Karen's allies in California and elsewhere can use to take over the party from the ground up at the local, state, and national level, because I think that's what it's going to take. And uh, this is a step forward in doing that. So I'm proud that in some small way I could help. Okay. 
Well, I've been speaking about a new report, Autopsy, the Democratic Party in Crisis, and actually I saw here on my notes because I was looking for it earlier. That the re- website. Yeah, the research I- for the autopsy report was funded by Action for a Progressive Future, the organization that sponsors RootsAction.org, and which currently has 1.3 million active supporters online nationwide. And you were going to give the website for the report yes, here. For anyone that wants to read the full report, it is at DemocraticAutopsy.org. Right. Okay. And I've been speaking with Karen, who you just heard, Karen Bernal. She chairs one of the largest caucuses in the California Democratic Party, the Progressive Caucus, and she serves as a delegate to the state party. And also on the line is Richard Escal, Senior Advisor, Health and Economic Justice for Social Security Works and host of the Zero Hour on Free Speech TV and WCPT Radio in Chicago. He recently wrote the piece, Why Centrists Will Sink the Democrats If They Haven't Already, at ourfuture.org. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guests, Karen Bernal, Richard Escal, and Gerald Horn. The music we played during this hour was End of the Line by Fotech and Requiem for a Tower Dream by the London Music Works. Our show theme is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to all of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averm. Thank you for tuning in and keep raising your voice. Peace. Oh, my God.